Brethren, in the year that King Uzziah died, the sovereign creator of heaven and earth revealed himself to Isaiah the prophet by a heavenly vision in the temple. Isaiah wrote in chapter 6, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, between eight and nine hundred years later, God revealed himself to the Apostle John in a breathtaking vision of heaven. John wrote, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now, he alone is the very essence of goodness, righteousness, flawless purity, and moral excellence. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He alone is the definition and standard of holiness. There is none holy as the Lord, Scripture says. The sum total of all His attributes, the splendor of His majesty, and the grandeur of His perfections are summed up in the word holy. Nothing in all of this created universe compares to the matchless beauty of our God's holiness. The radiant outshining of His holiness fills the angels of heaven with shouts of praise. Holy, holy, holy! And it fills the citizens of heaven with awe and wonder and adoration. It causes the very prophets to cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. It moves His people to marvel. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? And it causes his enemies to wonder who is able to stand before this holy Lord God. Now, when we open the Scriptures, we discover that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all holy. God's name is holy. His habitation is holy. His throne is holy. The angels are holy. He speaks in His holiness and swears by His holiness. His word is holy. His works are holy. His tabernacle and temple, their priests, their garments, their vessels, 
their offerings and their anointing oil were holy. His Sabbath is holy. Jerusalem of old was holy. And Jerusalem to come will be holy. His prophets and His apostles were holy. And His people, His old covenant and His new covenant elect, His old covenant and His new covenant Israel, His old covenant and His new covenant priesthood, His old covenant and His new covenant temple, were and are called with a holy calling so that they might be holy. Before He created the world, our thrice holy God purposed to pardon an innumerable host of fallen wicked rebels and to transform them into loving, obedient, holy children. By the way, those of you that love the doctrine of grace and love the doctrine of predestination, then there ought to be burning in your heart an equal love for holiness or you deny the very doctrine itself. Paul tells us that God hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, what was God's goal in making these sinners holy? Paul tells us, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the Holy God, through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Word births His children to make them holy. Let me say that again. The Holy God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and His Holy Word, births His children to make them holy. We have gotten to the point in our day where... All uh, it seems like the only way that the gospel is presented is that it's all about just individual sinners just getting saved. And somehow or another that means they bypass hell. And of course, it is about sinners being saved. But we lose the larger picture of Scripture when God in His wisdom and in His mercy tells us He is saving a kingdom, He's saving a church, a body, And that body is to be the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy, spotless, without blame. A holy people. And it's not simply that I am pardoned. And we thank and praise God that we are pardoned. But His purpose is to make us an holy people. Now God created man in His image. And man, the crown of creation, was to reflect God's holy character in every aspect of his life. But the Word of God informs us that man believed the lie of Satan, rejected the authoritative Word of God, followed his wife in believing Satan's lie, and died spiritually, forfeiting God's holiness 
and spreading the reign of death and pollution of sin to all his descendants. Though created in the image of God, all human beings are born with hearts that are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God's commandments reflect his holy will and character. And when men obey God's commandments, they reflect that holy character. Ye shall be holy because I am holy. But because man is spiritually dead and depraved, he cannot make himself holy. That is not in our power to do, brethren. Only God can make sinful men holy by His great and gracious salvation through Jesus Christ. So we need to ask the question, what is holiness? When referring to God, holiness means His essence of being totally, perfectly good and entirely without evil. Now this means that God is separated from all that is wicked and separated unto all that is righteous. In reference to redeemed men, holiness is the state and outworking in their thoughts, words, and deeds of union with Jesus Christ. That's another point to repeat. What is holiness when it comes to you and me? I trust we understand something of holiness when we talk about God. When it comes to you and me, it means the state and the outworking in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds of union with Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected Lord of glory. The heart and soul of biblical holiness is union with Christ. Now, the Bible views this holiness in two senses. Number one, by the power of the Holy Ghost and union with Christ, we are dead to the realm of sin... We are alive by the resurrection of Christ, and we are new creatures. Holiness in this sense is a once and for all reality that takes place when believers are brought into saving union with Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost in the new birth. Those of you that like to put labels on things, we call that definitive sanctification. It is something that is true of every child of God. We are sanctified once for all in Christ. But there's the second sense. We must not lose sight of either of these senses. The second sense of holiness revealed in Scripture is a progressive, ongoing work By the power of God's Spirit, in which He continually renews and transforms us into Christ-likeness. 
It is a progressive and ongoing work of God's Spirit in which He continually renews and transforms us into Christ's likeness. Brethren, in other words, our lives begin to speak of the change that God has made by the power of His Spirit in our hearts and souls. Christianity is a life. It is not a dead philosophy that sits on the shelf that we can sit and argue about. It is the life of God in the soul of man. And God cannot come into union with man without that man changing. He changes men. He changes sinners by His grace into those that love Him and love His Word and love His people. So holiness in this sense is empowered by the Holy Ghost, informed by the Word of God, and manifested by faith, repentance, and obedience. Loving obedience. Now, brethren, I've been in circles where the word obey is treated like some kind of worldly four-letter word. You tell these people to obey, and the immediate cry you hear is, Legalist! And I would say they're in desperate spiritual condition, if not altogether lost. This is no light matter. Jesus Christ changes sinners. Weak a sinner as one may be. Weak a child of God as he may be. We do not come into union with Christ without being transformed by faith, repentance, and loving obedience. The weakest child of God may be falling flat on his face every day, but he gets up and he keeps going. Why? Because he's alive. He's alive in the Spirit, regardless of how weak this vessel is. He's alive by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, God's purpose, in fact, God's eternal purpose, becomes historical reality in the lives of God's people. This is what we call eschatological life. For those of you that are visiting with us, you may not be familiar with those terms. We've heard them here before. But eschatology is very often thought of as only to do with the very last things. Uh, eschatology has to do with the last things, no doubt. But generally, when we think of that, all we think about is, well, the day of judgment and uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus and other matters. But brethren, we again lose sight and we've, we begin to chop up the scriptures and, and uh, make out our systematic theology in ways that sometimes keeps us from seeing what the whole of God's word flows into. The picture here is glorious. The new birth is not just some kind of a religious experience that people talk about. It is when the very life that we will know throughout all eternity takes up residence within the believer. When you're born again, the very life that you will know in heaven has become a reality, a seed form within you. 
Those that are born again, when this, this earthly shell falls away, what will be there? Well, you, the one born of God's Spirit. But you're not going to just undergo a transformation then. What is it that kept you praying in great times of sorrow and trouble and temptation? What was it that kept you trusting Christ when all around you seemed to crumble? What was it that when you hurt spiritually or physically or emotionally more than you thought you could live through, what was it that kept you going? It wasn't because you were so wonderful. It certainly wasn't because you were so strong. It's because of eschatological life. In other words, the Spirit of God dwelling in you now. You are a citizen of heaven now. Eschatological life is the life that we will know in its fullness in the consummation of God's glorious kingdom. But it dwells within these vessels of dust now. Right now. That's why Paul can say we are new creatures. The Spirit of God fills our hearts with love and zeal for Him and because of union with Christ, we want to live lives that please Him. And in response to His grace, we want to do whatever He wants us to do. We do not obey Him in order to be saved. Nor do we obey Him in order to keep our salvation. We desire to bring Him glory by lovingly obeying Him because of what He has done for us in His death and resurrection, and we want to be like Him because of what He does in us. Christ has done things both for us and in us, and we need to realize both of them in order to have a good grasp of the Christian life and to walk in what God has called us to. Holiness in this sense begins as the state of the heart made new by the Holy Spirit and expresses itself in what we think, say, and do. It is an internal principle of grace that displays itself externally by lovingly conforming our lives according to the Word of God. So we can conclude from this that there are at least three discernible elements in holiness. Number one, a standard. And that standard is the Word of God. The standard is not your feelings, your emotions, or books outside of the Word of God in and of themselves. We're not banning books. We love books. You come to my house, you'll see books. But what we're saying is that there is one standard to which God will hold us, and that is His Word. Number two, power, and that is the Holy Spirit. And number three, a motive, and that is love for Christ. So, three elements in holiness. A standard, the Word of God, power, 
the Holy Spirit and a motive, love for Jesus Christ. Now, if we fail at any of these three elements, we will fall into some form of legalism. So we want to take up the notion of legalism then for the next few minutes. There are some difficulties in defining legalism. In light of what we uh, have just seen as the biblical witness to holiness, how are we to understand the term legalism? I can tell you that over the last 20 years, I've heard that word used a lot of ways. And it's usually a nice big club that people like to use on people that they don't agree with. And it's rarely ever used in what we might call a biblical way. The first thing to say about legalism is this. One, legalism is a difficult issue because the word is not found in a single verse of Holy Scripture. Now, it is true. There are things that we see in Scripture that we use words for that are not in the Holy Scripture, such as Trinity or Millennium for the thousand-year period, whatever your view on that happens to be. We use terms that are not found in Scripture, so it's not illegitimate to use a term that's not found in Scripture to define something that's there. But that must be borne in mind how dangerous it is when we have something that's not found in Scripture and can be defined the way people want to use it. Now, unfortunately, is often the way this term is used. Number two, legalism is, difficult, is a difficult issue because the words legalist and legalism are so often misused. It has become a term that pretty much means what one wants it to mean. Our little group has its a list of uh, five or six things that we think are okay, and we beat up everybody that doesn't agree with us on those five or six things. In most evangelical circles, if you want to hurl an abusive term of the first magnitude at someone, you simply call him a legalist. He's a legalist. And that's it. End of argument. End of story. I don't have to listen to what he says. I don't have to listen to what he points me to. It's all over. He's a legalist. Number three, legalism is a difficult issue because there are several attitudes and errors associated with the word legalism in Scripture. Unfortunately, the way many modern evangelicals use it, legalism basically means... Someone who tells me that the Bible says I should or should not do something that I don't agree with. That is not an exaggeration. This is the way many people think. Fourth, and finally, legalism is a difficult issue because no one who is accused of legalism ever admits to being a legalist. You ever called someone a legalist and had him say, sure. Of course I am. What do you think I am? I've been trying to tell you. Isn't it obvious? I'm a legalist. Now do what I tell you. 
The obvious way to dodge the accusation of legalists is simply to redefine the term so that it doesn't apply to you. Oh, I'm not a legalist because, and then we give our reason, and we've done just what the opposing side has done. They're probably misusing the term, and in order to get out from under their false charge to begin with, we come up with our own definition that makes us okay. Brethren, this is not the Christian life as it's intended to be. But unfortunately, it is the way many, many live. So we have a term that isn't found in Scripture, that is regularly abused, that can be applied to several different errors, and that no one accused of ever admits to. And complicating this even further is the fact that because all believers still have the remainders of sin in their flesh, we are all tainted by legalism in some form or other. And let me say that again. Everyone in this room is tainted by real legalism in some way or another. It is inherent to fallen sinful flesh. And if you have spent most of your time thinking about other people's legalism and not attempting to deal with your own, it's likely that you are in very real error. We must understand that legalism is the natural-born religion of our hearts. And believers in Christ must always be keeping a watchful eye that it doesn't subtly creep into our practice. We are all works mongers because of our fallen nature. What do I mean by that? Deep in our heart of hearts, we believe that we can do something that God will look down on and say, Oh, pretty good. You did okay with that. And then we'll take that thing and offer it to Him and say, I'm okay because of this, right? I've counseled people for years. People that say they know and love the grace of God and they'll come in and they'll begin to pour out their hearts about some sin they've committed and what they will say is, well, you know, I'll, I'll read my Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll do this more. I'll... And that's the very heart of legalism. That isn't what makes you right with God. You should read your Bible more. Shame on all of us that we are not as saturated with the Word of God as we possibly can be. And we will never be sanctified apart from knowing the Word of God. But our Bible reading doesn't make us right with God. And all our praying doesn't make us right with God. And all of our religious works do not make us right with God. Tragedies befall us. And we say, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? Why is this happening to my children? I've, I've heard many, many people in the family movement with this type of cry from their hearts. They've done all that they can to rear their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They have loved them. They've had family worship day after day after day. Their fathers are exemplary fathers. It would just floor you to see the kind of lives some of these men lead. They're, they're, they're 
consistency in front of their children. They're day to day reading the Word of God, giving their children the Word of God, living the Word of God before them, taking them out to do evangelical work, and then the children defect. And the first thing they do is, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay, what, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And they go through this agony for months, sometimes years. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Well, look, if you're a parent, you've done tons. Of, you, can't, you can't count how many things you've done wrong. You can't count them. Every day you do something wrong. Your best efforts are filled with weakness. But what are you thinking? I did all the right stuff. My child should be a Christian. That's legalistic thinking. Because men become Christians only by the power of the Holy Ghost. We must give our lives as parents to rear our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I'm not saying one thing to lighten what we ought to do. I'm only saying that when you've done the very best you can, the one thing you can't do is give your child a new heart. You can't. That is God's sovereign work. It appears then, if we consider it carefully, that there are at least three motives, or excuse me, at least three elements in legalism. It seems that the legalist has a standard, whether it's God's Word, a misinterpretation of God's Word, a human addition to God's Word, or just plain flesh-inspired human tradition. This is why the Lord Jesus rebuked the Pharisees so often, because they added their own traditions that eventually took over the place of the Word of God. The power to achieve this is our own. That's the problem with legalism. It is something that we attempt to do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. And there is no work that will ever do that. Friend, the only thing that will ever make you right with God is faith in the resurrected Lord of glory. Jesus Christ. That will make you right with God. And then there's a motive. And the motive is to achieve this righteousness in whatever way. So there's a standard, a motive, and power to accomplish. Just like holiness. And that's why we must understand what real holiness is. Or we will make a man-made substitute that will fail and leave us in great sorrow before God. The legalist believes that in some way, even if he's not thinking it consciously in these words, that he can procure God's favor by something that he does. I do this, and God says, yes, you're okay. Yes, I'm pleased with you now. 
the minute you've done that, you've taken your eyes off of the only place that God wants you to look. And that is to His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot make yourself good enough for God, even as a professing believer. Now, there are different kinds of legalism. The first kind of legalism is the idea that one can be justified in whole or in part by his own works, rather than by faith alone in the resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, this is an eternally fatal error, and it is plainly refuted throughout the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul to Rome and Galatia. Romans 3.20, for instance, says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Likewise, Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. This is a common damning error and clearly refuted by Scripture. We may take the term legalism and properly apply it to someone who is attempting to be justified before God by his religious works. Now, they're the easiest ones to spot because Paul dealt with this so much and the Word of God deals with it so often. But a second kind of legalism is keeping God's law to keep one's salvation. Many profess that justification by faith alone is the doctrine of Scripture. We say, Amen. But they also believe that they must keep themselves holy enough after they believed by some kind of law keeping, again, either the Word of God, a misinterpretation of God's Word, or an addition to God's Word, or they will lose their salvation. Brethren, many in professing evangelicalism believe this. Sure, we're saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, but if you don't keep yourself holy enough, well, you're finished. A third kind of legalism is stressing a strict observance of the letter of the law without stressing the spirit from which God's law should be kept. Now, this is a minefield, and I'm not going to, I don't have the time this morning to take this up in any kind of detail. But I can tell you that outward conformity to God's law without a heart of faith and love was characteristic of Israel. And regardless of your theological position where you sit this morning, on where the, the law sits in the life of the believer, the fact is, obeying God's law is not legalism. It is the attitude by which we approach the law of God. And if we simply 
have a strict observance to the letter of the law without stressing or understanding the spirit from which it should be kept, we will become legalists. This is what the Pharisees did as well. A fourth kind of legalism is doing what is right, but doing it for self-exaltation. Jesus gave a parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, what's wrong with this fellow? Well, your modern guys would say, Oh, he's keeping the law. That isn't what Christ reproves him for. That's not the heart of the issue. The things that the Pharisee did and those that he avoided were all in harmony with the Word of God. It was that he did it for self-exaltation. Jesus didn't say, Ah, oh, the Pharisee went to hell because he kept God's law. No, he said, he justified himself. Modern evangelicalism has a perverted view of the law of God. The Lord Jesus concluded by saying, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The problem was the heart and why he was keeping the law. And brethren, we can do the same thing calling ourselves believers in grace. I believe in grace. One, two, three, four, five. I've got the five points. I wear them on my chest like a, a badge. And uh, I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do that. And this is what we offer up to God. And I'm sure not like those Arminians. And I'm not like all those other people because... There's these five things I don't do. That's the very heart and soul of what Christ damned. A fifth kind of legalism is adding human tradition to the law of God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees saying, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Paul addressed the Colossians regarding this kind of error. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is the living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men. He doesn't say after the commandments and doctrines of God. He says the ones that lay all these labels on things that come out of their own hearts, not from the Spirit of God. God does tell us to run away from some things. Flee fornication. I hear modern Christians constantly saying things like, well, you know, Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. It's just about a relationship. Now, this is the kind of thing I grew up with. But that's error. God tells us we have a Lord. He tells us what to do. He tells us what not to do. That's not all that the relationship is based on. But to tell people that, well, you know, we don't worry about things you do or don't do, that's to deny the fact that we have a Lord. 
Someone who rules and reigns over us by His glorious grace. It still commands us. Again, it doesn't matter what your position are. New covenant, covenant theology. It doesn't matter at this particular level. What is being condemned is what men spew out of their own hearts. Out of their own traditions. So, these are what we find in Scripture as genuine errors to which we might properly attach the term legalism. Legalism appears to be adherence to a standard, the Word of God or the rules of men, empowered by the flesh for the purpose of self-exaltation. Say that again. Legalism is the adherence to a standard, the Word of God or the rules of men, empowered by the flesh for the purpose of self-exaltation. And lying at the heart of legalism are unbelief and pride and the prideful notion that my works, whether they actually be from God's Word or from man's mind, establish my righteousness with God. Brethren, I hope this is clear. Because this impacts directly our day-to-day walk with the Lord and how you view yourself in the light of God's Word and others. Because you're going to be looking at others. That's our human nature. It's easy to find other people being legalists, isn't it? When was the last time you found yourself a legalist? If you said, I've never found myself a legalist, I'm very deeply concerned about you. Because that's all human nature is. Have you never been shown by the Spirit and Word of God that your only hope to be right before God is to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus? Trust Him alone as your righteousness. This does not exclude obedience. It is the very fuel of our obedience. So let's talk for a few minutes about who is and who isn't a legalist. This is not an exhaustive list. It could go quite a long time. But these are just a few things we might think about. You are not a legalist if by faith and love for the Lord Jesus you obey His law. I repeat, you are not a legalist if by faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ you obey His law. You are a legalist if you keep God's law Old Covenant or New Covenant in order to gain or keep your salvation. Secondly, you are not a legalist if you believe that professing Christians should obey the Lord Jesus Christ with love, humility, and mercy. And it is not wrong to exhort other professing believers to obey the Lord Jesus with love, humility, and mercy. You are a legalist if you believe your obedience makes you more acceptable to God than others who are not on your level. 
get that? I look, I read, I do some things. I look at the brother next to me. He's not quite where I am. And I begin to think, I'm more right with God because of what I'm doing and what He isn't doing. Brethren, you are like that by nature. You will not very often go to the Word of God to compare how you're doing. You will look at other people to see how you are doing. And that's the wrong standard. And when you begin to think you're better, a little bit better, maybe not a lot better, but just a little better than those people over in that building over there. Because you're doing these things and they're not. You're adopting the mind of a legalist. You are not a legalist if you have high standards, high scruples, or if you are more precise in your understanding of obedience than others. You are a legalist if you think that your higher standards make you more righteous than someone else. We have some very high standards here because we believe them simply to be the Word of God. We should, with all of our hearts, give ourselves to loving obedience to what we believe the Word of God teaches us. But the minute, brethren, we think that because we own school and the people down the street don't, or because we wear certain things that they don't, if we think that that, make, that that makes us more acceptable to God, listen, you're a legalist. Don't miss this. High standards don't make you a legalist. It's what you think about your high standards. I see today the careless tossing around of modern evangelicals the minute uh, people... Uh, begin to walk in certain what we might call high principles or standards, and the first thing they do is lump them all together with the legalists. That's just as wrong a thinking. But those that are keeping what we might call those high standards, whether they be modesty or any of those other things, if you think that makes you more right with God, friend, you, the flesh in you is thinking like a legalist. You are not a legalist if you exhort others to obey God's Word. You are a legalist if you bind men's conscience to your human tradition. You are not a legalist if you come to a matter that Scripture does not directly address, and by prayerful study you reach a conclusion and implement it into your life and your home. If, however another believer prayerfully considers the same matter and reaches a different conclusion than you, you are a legalist if you think that because of your conclusion, you are more acceptable to God. This is vital. Do not miss it. You are not a legalist if you do not watch TV, I would think 
you are showing signs of intelligence. But you're not a legalist if you say, I don't want to watch that thing. And others will call you that because you say, I don't want to watch that thing and I don't want to have that thing in my house. And I don't want it molesting my children. You are not a legalist if you do not attend movies. You are not a legalist if you do not listen to rock music. You are not a legalist if you do not practice birth control. I would rather just say many modern Christians think that child prevention is part of being a modern Christian. But without going into that particular issue, you're not a legalist just because you do not practice child prevention. You are not a legalist because you do not practice mixed swimming. You're not a legalist because you believe in patriarchy. You are not a legalist if you practice courtship. Or if you practice covering your head. Or if you practice covering your body modestly. You're not a legalist. You're not a legalist if you homeschool. And that list could go on for a long time. And you are not a legalist if you encourage others to prayerfully consider what you believe the Word of God teaches regarding these things. However, if you believe that these are signs that you are a true Christian and that they are not, you're on a downward slope. And if you think that these things commend you to God above someone else, you are a legalist. According to the ways we have defined these here. If you believe that holding these convictions makes you more acceptable to God because you keep them and they do not, you are thinking like a legalist. Legalism in all of its forms is spiritually bankrupt and destroys true spirituality. It is a counterfeit religion. It is a false hope. And it is the very opposite of true holiness, which proceeds from the power of God. And among the most tragic and rotten fruits that legalism bears is judgmentalism. Listen carefully, brethren. One of the most tragic and wretched fruits of legalism is that it produces judgmentalism. Paul asks us, Why dost thou judge thy brother? And why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then every one of us shall give account of himself. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Because self-righteousness and pride are the heart of legalism, a harsh, condemning spirit always accompanies it. 
You hear that? It withers true joy in Christ. Legalism simply cannot produce joy. It leaves a trail of spiritual bodies in its wake. And I've seen it for years. Legalism is the true antithesis of holiness. There's a standard for holiness. The Word of God. There's a standard for legalism. It's the Word of God, or a misinterpretation of the Word of God, or an addition to the Word of God, or just man's plain and simple traditions. There is a power in true holiness, and it is the power of God Himself through the Holy Spirit, making us new creatures and giving us a longing for that which is right and good. But there is a power in legalism that every one of us will wrestle with all the days of our lives, and it's called ourselves. And there is a motive. A motive to true holiness is love for Jesus Christ, the one who died upon the cross of Calvary, bearing all the wrath of God for our sins. We love Him because in His grace, He loved us before the world began, and in His time and in His way, He drew us sweetly to Himself. And we walk with Him because He's captured our hearts by grace. But legalism is doing it for self-exaltation, one way or the other, to make myself righteous either before God or before men. And that brings us to our last few thoughts. The sufficiency of Scripture. What are we to make of all these things? We've covered a lot of ground this morning. And I've probably raised a number of questions. But because the thrice holy God loves His children, He has done absolutely everything infinitely necessary to save, to keep them, and ultimately to glorify them. Everything. We are saved in Christ. We are saved by faith alone in Christ through the mercy and grace of God. One of His greatest gifts to His children is His inspired, infallible Word. Paul writes, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that means complete, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You want to know what pleases God? It is a heart of love for Him, obeying what He has told us in His Word. And when we walk according to His Word, the world sees that loving obedience holiness. It sets us apart. It is what makes us different. We don't have to sit down and figure out what makes us look weird or odd or anything like that. When you follow God's book, you're going to be different from the way the world is going. It's going to show up in every avenue of your life. Friends, family, all the way across the board. And tragically today, some of the people striving the most intensely to walk in the Word of God are called legalists by modern Christianity. Christianity. 
We go to the Word to be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We don't just do what we do because we're free in the Spirit to do whatever we feel like the Spirit of God is leading us to do. We do what God has spoken. Clearly, plainly, infallibly. And He said it before us in His Word. Our confession, the London Baptist Confession, declares the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, that's not Scripture. It's a confession. But what it is saying is we confess that this is what the Word of God is all about. And we believe that. We believe that God's Word speaks to every issue in our lives, either by clear precept or ultimately by some principle that He's given. Where most of us disagree is the application of principles to issues that are not directly spoken to. Not only that, our confession says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. That is sound. Scripture is sufficient to address all the issues of life for God's children. Well, brethren, I say to you today, with all of my heart, that we are to walk in biblical holiness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us learn to identify and then flee legalism with all of our hearts and let everything that we do be informed and guided by the infallible Word of God and His Spirit. To the glory of Jesus Christ, world without end. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.